Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Monk here. On this episode of MFP Live, publisher Kimberly Griffin and editor Donna Ladd speak with Joy Hogue and Melody Warsham. Joy is the executive director of Families as Allies, and Melody is a peer support specialist from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. They discuss Mississippi's mental health crisis as well as the long-running U.S. versus Mississippi lawsuit over state mental health services in the remedy process. Joy has a master's degree and Ph.D. in counseling psychology from Texas A&M University. She's been the executive director of Families Families as Allies since 2011, where she oversees the development, implementation, and assessment of family-driven, community-based services that support children with mental health challenges and their families. Melody has been working with the Mental Health Association of Mississippi since 2011, where she not only serves as a peer support specialist, but also as a coordinator of the Wellness Recovery Action Planning Workshops. Melody is also a founding member of the Association of Mississippi Peer Support Specialists. Here's Donna. Tonight, we're going to be talking, obviously, we're going to talk about mental health in Mississippi, a vital topic, and uh, and a very important mental health lawsuit with Melody Warsham. I have a feeling I said her name wrong, and Joy Hogue. So uh, we're, we're very happy to do this. But before we get into the mental health conversation, I just want to know a little bit more about each of you. And I love to ask guests... Uh, either to talk about growing up Mississippi or if you came here from somewhere else, how you ended up in Mississippi. So, uh, Joy, why don't you start us out? Okay. Well, I ended up in Mississippi about a little over 25 years ago. My husband and I were living in Texas, and he's originally from New York, and he had come here to do a guest talk, and was he's a psychiatrist, and was in looking at other opportunities and he was talking about what how wonderful the department of psychiatry was here and they offered him a job and i said well it sounds like you're happy maybe you should consider it and he's like i could never move to mississippi and then (laughs) 11 months later we were here so that's how i ended up in mississippi and um have really enjoyed it and all the opportunities that have come with it And one of those opportunities is I'm the executive director of Families as Allies, and we're a statewide organization run by and for families of children with behavioral health challenges. So we support each other as parents, and then we bring families together to make things better for our children at the systems level. And that's one reason that we're really interested in the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. And what about you, Melody? Tell us about your background in Mississippi. Well, uh, came here around the age of maybe four or five. My father was deployed to the Vietnam War. And so it was the military that initially brought us to Mississippi. And I've been all over the place since then, but I've always ended up coming back. Um, I've heard other people say that Mississippi is a boomerang state. Once you come and you leave, you're going to end up coming back. (laughs) And um, so I've lived in South Mississippi for a a good portion of my life. I consider myself an Ocean Springs native. And then I am a certified peer support specialist with the Mental Health Association of South Mississippi. And in that capacity, I use my lived experience with mental illness, uh, Mm -hmm. trauma, Uh, to help other people who are trying to recovery, seeking recovery. We do consider ourselves uh, what we call champions of mental health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And so we provide a lot of support services and resources to help people just live the life that they want to live. That's our goal. You know, I was just thinking, I was, I told you guys before the show started that 
I was in a meeting right before this. We're uh, about to launch this Black Women in COVID-19 project with the Jackson Advocate. And we were just having a conversation about mental health um, because what they're doing in this project is looking at systemic issues in different counties around the state, you know, how those systemic issues affect education, equity in one area, healthcare in another, and in another here in Hines, in fact, public safety um, and crime issues and how all of that kind of overlaps and how, how COVID-19 kind of really put a magnifying glass on, on these issues, particularly for black women, which is our focus. But the reason I say all this right now, first of all, it's just right on my brain, right at the edge of it. But also we talked as a group uh, and all of the, uh, the women that are, are doing the journalism in this project are all black women. And they were, they were all talking about how in their counties, in their areas, that the real common denominator other than the obvious of racism and resources was mental health. And that when we're talking about solutions and reporting solutions, which is what this project is ultimately going to do, um, that mental health is like just this, just rises to the top. And I think those uh, those three reporters are going to be in touch with you guys because they 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 want to do a joint project on mental health, like across these areas. So I say that to just kind of set up this idea, I guess, that maybe it's a broad term. You guys are the experts. And so we want you to explain to us, really, we want you to give us the lay of the land about what mental health looks like and access to mental health care and you know tell us what first of all what people need to know about where we are right now in mississippi on this issue uh, because i know it's something that touches almost everybody's lives joy that's a big question <laughs> but i, I want to kick that to you just kind of you know educate us what do we need to know well first of all i think you're hitting on something key just by emphasizing mental health. Mm -hmm. It's part of our health. It's part of who we are. It's not this separate thing that people go and get fixed somewhere. That we first of all need to mm -hmm. see mental health as part of health. And that it's when we focus that way, it's something that helps us do the things that all people want to do. So it should focus on helping us do and that seems like a given, but as we um, talk more about what's happening in Mississippi, I think we'll see that that's one of the big challenges. The right kind of mental health support, first of all, focuses on health. It's where people already are anyway, like going to your doctor for children, their school, um, healthy workplace environments, things like that, practices in the community that support positive mental health. And it focuses on helping people do the real things, like for adults, being able to work, being able to live with their family, being able to be a, a part of the community and give back in ways they want to give back. And for children, being able to live with their families, uh, being able to go to school. So services and supports that are in embedded where people already are, and then practices in the community that helps support everybody's mental health. Melody, go ahead and uh, build off of that, you know, especially based on your own experiences. 
Um, sure. And then I'll give a, an example that I think is less stigmatized. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let's talk maybe diabetes or over being overweight. People are not motivated, uh, you know, by let me go take some medicine. Let me go to the doctor and I'll take some medicine and treat this. Their whole goal for it is that I want to feel better. I want to feel well. I want to be healthy again. And the first thing that a doctor will say if you went in for those problems is they're going to say, you need exercise, you need to eat right. He's talking about wellness. He's talking about staying healthy and preventing that. And a lot of times when we start talking about mental health, we automatically go to the medical model. Um, we're talking about, oh, well, you need to go to the hospital. You need to take medicine. And it's like, well, I'm just trying to be a better mother. I want to work well at work and you know be able to function during the day. Uh, I want to get through some stressful things that are happening in my life. That's what I want to do. We need to take that out of that medical model and look at it as this is my wellness. I, I want to live life. This is my goal for doing these things. And so I agree with Joy. We talk about mental illness or the treatment, and but we're not talking enough about that you can't have any health without mental health. And um, and so staying healthy is, is a goal. And those things can be done uh, without that beds and meds model. You know, I think that is important for a lot of people, but it shouldn't be that immediate go-to. And in Mississippi, that's actually where I see where there are those gaps of services, that there's not enough of that. Let's help you just stay well. Let's help you get through a meaningful day and live out your purpose and meaning in life. You know, it's more focused on, we need to get you on the meds. We got to get you on medication. And a lot of times those medications can actually cause people to even lose parts of their lives that they're actually trying to gain. And so there's that gap of service in Mississippi that we really need to focus on right now if we want to focus on mental health at all. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I feel like you guys are going to be to explain something that I have read that I'm not completely sure I understand because this is your field. Mississippi was sued because of our mental health care system, and that ended up in the Fifth Circuit. Did I get the circuit right? It's not there yet. Okay. All right. And, well, we have, you- and we're hoping it doesn't go there. Okay. But before so- Judge Reeves right now. he just Okay. Ruled. Before Judge Reeves, I put him in the wrong court system. Tell us why we were, why the state was sued, who the state is in this case, and where that lawsuit stands right now. Yeah, I can get started here. It was more than 10 years ago that the Department of Justice started interviewing people who had gone through the mental health system here in Mississippi. Some of the things that they found out were people were being coerced, uh, they were uh, over-medicated, they were being treated as though they had no say in, in what care that they would want. And there is no one size fits fits all model for anything in our health. You know, we're all different people. And so they were treating everyone the same. It got to the point where there really was violating the civil rights of a lot of people and taking their lives away. If you're over medicated and being over hospitalized, while that's happening to me, I'm losing everything. I'm losing uh, relationships with my family. I'm losing my job. I'm losing education. All those things that mean something to me. And so that kind of thing is actually what started it. There was even one thing that they said was uh, at one of the hospitals, long-term people who said, hey, I think I'm ready to get out of this hospital. They had to come back and actually tell the psychiatrist reasons why they should stay as a reason to get out. You know, they had to come up with reasons why they should stay. And so it's very coercive. (laughs) And uh, yes, and, um, and I myself, I even had the experience about 35 years ago that um, I refused to take my medication. And I kept telling them, I'm not going to take it. I'm just not going to do this. I don't like the way it makes me feel. And all of a sudden, one day, 
here comes a police car and they literally handcuffed me in front of my neighbors, treating me like a criminal. They hauled me to a health department and they injected me with a 30 day injection. And then they brought me back home and my psychiatrist called and he said, if you don't want to take your meds, I will take them for you. I'll make sure that you take them. That is coercive and, uh, and it violates my rights to receive treatment and deny treatment. We always have the right to deny treatment and say, I don't want that treatment. And so they were not giving people choices, even though I was not under any committal or court order, these kind of things were going on. So that's how it all got started is these kinds of things were systemic, you know? So yeah, the lawsuit actually started more than 10 years ago. And it's based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the idea, and neither Melody or I are lawyers. So we're sharing this just from the perspective of people who have kind of been in the middle of this. I think we all know like with the Americans with Disabilities Act, it makes sense say like elevator buttons that have braille or making sure there's wheelchair ramps. But for people with a mental illness, the types of supports they need in the community are those things like to help them work, like approaches that will help them um, be able to keep a job if that's what they want and learn to do that job, to have housing that works for them, that gives them the proper kind of support. So that's where this came from. And in 19... 1999, there was a Supreme Court case called Olmstead, and it was two women in Georgia who said, we don't mm-hmm. want to be in an institution anymore. So it started mm-hmm. with two people with mental illness who knew what they wanted for themselves. So I think that's kind of unique. And they wanted to be able to live in the community. So that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of them and against the state of Georgia. And then Georgia had to provide them and other people who were in their same situation the right kind of services so they could live in the community. And that's the type of investigation that happened in um, Mississippi that Melody's talking about was an Olmstead investigation. And Mississippi received a comprehensive letter of violations from the Department of Justice. And it was about the adult mental health system, the children's mental health system, and the system for people with developmental disabilities. The state, and I think, I'm still not exactly sure who the state is, but right. it appears to be the attorney general's office is defending the state and the primary state agency involved is the Department of Mental Health. Attorney general's office has been clear with us that they're the ones making the decision, but they're advised by the Department of Health. So I don't really know exactly who's making the decisions in this case, right. but right. they negotiated um, from 2012 or so to 2015. The negotiations failed. They were sued in 2016. Um, the case went to trial in 2019 and Judge Reeves ruled in favor of Department of Justice of the United States saying that the state didn't comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act, then they had from that time until now to come up with a plan. And there was a special master appointed to um, be able to satisfy what was found in the lawsuit. And I thought, you know, I really didn't know what it would be like watching all this. And Judge Reeves does have I think a reputation of being really um, pro civil rights. And I thought he might really be in there being maybe even bombastic, but he has been so supportive of both sides and trying to get them to come to an agreement and to come up with a plan themselves, but they weren't able to do that. And he um, issued his final ruling, I guess about a month ago in favor of the United States and 
appointed a monitor who was the same person picked by both sides, who was the special master, Dr. Hogan, to oversee the implementation of the plan. And the plan is one that the state wrote, or is basically what the state um, wanted and wrote, but he added a monitor, Dr. Hogan, and then he on added a clinical review so that as this is plan is being carried out, there will have to be input from people receiving services about whether or not the, mm -hmm. um, those services are actually helping them. And what the state has signaled, and they basically have said it in everything they filed, is that they don't think they should have been found in violation. They don't think they were ever in violation of the ADA, that they think they should only be judged on whether or not they're, they have money for the services and the capacity, not whether or not people are actually receiving them. And they object to the clinical review and they object to the monitoring. So they're signaling, that's why I say, please don't say Fifth Circuit yet, because they're signaling they're gonna appeal and that's where it would mm. go. And I think that would just be tragic waste of time. And I don't understand why they wouldn't want people with mental illness to have those services for us to show they're having those services. I just don't get it. Seems, yeah, seems odd. It's like saying we have enough food. It doesn't matter if the people come eat. We have that's enough food. Yeah. That's interesting. So what, tell me, about, so, but this is the plan they created. Mm -hmm. Judge Reese is just saying, I have to trust, but verify for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so what's in the plan right now? What, what does that look like for um, the healthcare system, the mental health system in Mississippi? Okay. It's an array of services that help people live in the community. So it's things like 24 hour crisis response. And that's, supposed to be being offered now, but it's not really clear. Because one thing that came out throughout the whole course of this 10 years up until the last thing Judge Reeves said is that there's lots of things written down on paper, but there's mm -hmm. no way to prove those things are actually happening. So most hmm. of these things are already written down on paper. So it's a plan that takes the state's own services in their book of, you know, their manual of standards and says, you have to do these and we have to make sure you're doing them. So it's things like 24-hour um, crisis response, both where people can call and where they can get services in person, like a crisis team going out to help them if they're having a mental health crisis. It's intensive services through things called like PAC teams, which um, programs of assertive community treatment, which is say someone's discharged from the hospital that this team, before they even leave the hospital, would already be working with them. It has several people on it, including a peer support specialist that will go to where they are, make sure they get the services and supports they need to stay in that healthy state, help them get this hooked up with what they want, like if they want a job or whatever. It has supported housing and supported employment. So those are things that help people live and work in the community and put services and supports around them. Also peer support, and I'm definitely gonna defer to Melody on that. So that someone who has been in the same shoes as that person can provide them the support they need. And it may have other things that I'm forgetting, Melody. Uh, yeah, a PAC team usually has uh, um, some kind of person with a nursing you know, an, a nursing uh, credential, uh, someone who can administer medicine or help a person to set up their medicine, someone who can handle medicines. Um, and then there's usually a therapist on the team and then uh, the, uh, the peer support specialist who is supposed to advocate and help to make sure that 
the person who's receiving those services is able to articulate their needs and articulate their own concerns, their wishes and desires and so forth. Um, one of the things that, you know, that looking good on paper, some of these things are very fragmented and um, they do look good on paper. Mobile crisis is an important thing. That means that 24 seven, I can call a mobile crisis team if I have a mental health crisis and a team just like that's made up that same way. There's uh, usually a therapist, a peer support specialist that come on that team and they will come to me. Their initial purpose is to help me to come up with some coping skills to manage my crisis. But if necessary, they're in a position to help that person to maybe go to a crisis stabilization unit, which is a temporary short term place for a person to go get some rest and stabilize their medicines, things like that. But what happens in the majority of instances in reality on paper, it looks beautiful. But in reality, if you call, a lot of them are actually sending the police first. And the police are deciding whether it's a mental health crisis and then calling the mobile crisis team back, which doesn't make any sense. I can't imagine a police officer being the one that you say, hey, my grandma's having a heart attack. And they send the police first and they go, yeah, it's a heart attack. Go ahead and bring the ambulance. That's not how it happens. You bring the ambulance. And um, so, so they've got it a little bit backwards in a lot of ways. And that needs to be fixed. A lot of us people with mental illness have had bad encounters with law enforcement. We're treated differently <laughs> and it can be a very scary deal. And, you know, so for a police officer to drive up because of my own personal experiences like that, if I'm in mental health crisis and I see a police car, I'm terrified. So that means that that's going to exacerbate any mental health crisis I'm already in. And it could actually escalate it to the point where they think I'm a danger to myself or others. Whereas before, I just needed someone to talk to. I needed someone to de-escalate me and help me calm down and, you know, figure out what I can do to get myself through this tough time. You know, uh, Coyote Crown, who is now reporting for the Mississippi Free Press as well, but had done a story a while back. I know, I think Joy was in that story, but mm -hmm. but that was talking about this kind of broken system, really, of police officers being called, people calling police officers because they are, are calling the police because they're desperate because someone's having some sort of mental health crisis, right? And they need help. It's like a mother or whatever. And then, um, and then the police come, they're not trained or they, you know, whatever, it brings out the worst of them. <laughs> and in some cases we end up with, uh, people dying because of the way that they are responding to them. And I think it's, I, I'm sure it's not just black men this happens to, but it certainly seems to be, you know, a good number, maybe adding to that, uh, stereotypical fear. Exactly. Here's the story that I'm talking about, Mario Clark. So I guess I, I'm just, for one thing, I'm curious, I mean, that's a great story because it has a lot in there about, that really kind of shows the problem, the systemic problem of how do we deal with that? You know, like how, you know, what needs to happen? So I'm curious what, what you guys think would be solutions to this that maybe you've seen somewhere else you know, where, how someone else could fill this role. And, and also if you're seeing any kind of, of progress in Mississippi on this point or locally or anywhere in Mississippi, that could be hope or a model for what uh, other areas should do. 
So those plans are written right there in Olmstead. We need to listen more to people mm -hmm. who have received services. We need to, the customer themselves, the customer's always right. Isn't that our mottos in a capitalist society? And um, so they need to listen more to us and what we're saying, what our needs are and what, uh, what we consider to be uh, the barriers to us accepting the help that's uh, available to us, the barriers to um, the gaps of services. And um, and that's the part that's really missing here is that, that part of Olmstead. And that's the part that confuses me about the lawsuit is that uh, the state has yet to say, we're going to start talking to people who have received services. As a matter of fact, at the hearing that happened a, a couple of months ago, the state was saying, we don't want anyone talking to people who've received services. It was the exact opposite. And it's like, well, then how do you know whether you're doing something right? How do you know whether you're doing something wrong? And so that's built into Olmstead is let's listen to the people who are receiving services. But again, if I don't know that there's another way to take care of my mental illness, if this is all I know, I don't know what to suggest to you. And, uh, you know, um, it's a good analogy is like, you know, someone, have you ever met someone who's never had chocolate in their life <laughs> and you started describing to them and talking to them, oh, you have to have chocolate. Well, the every way I describe chocolate actually sounds kind of gross. You know, it's mushy in your mouth, it's brown. And um, so when we talk about recovery services that actually can help you and not traumatize you that are outside that beds and meds concept, as soon as we start talking about those things, people are very receptive. But when they go to talk to someone and go, how are your services? Most of them are going, I'm very satisfied. I'm very satisfied. And the reason why they're doing that is they're saying it right in front of the therapist. They're saying it right in front of the providers that have possibly mistreated them and they don't know any better. And they're like, if I burn that bridge, I don't have any help at all. And so we've got to stop that. It needs to be independent people. Um, and that's what the DOJ was suggesting with this, uh, the monitor is someone who can actually go as a neutral person and talk to people receiving services and say, what is it that you wish would change? What could people do better? What do you wish they had? And, and get that information in a neutral, uh, safe environment for a person who's receiving services and might feel intimidated by the system. Another thing to keep in mind, it was the state who was sued in this lawsuit. And in our state, there's not really a good structure for how things are coordinated between the state department of mental health and then the individual mental health centers. They are certified. Their services are certified by the department of mental health. Most of them are paid for through the division of Medicaid, but then they're under like a local county board of supervisors. But one thing we really need that I hope will happen as far as your question of what would good crisis services or good services look like Donna, is there needs to be an overall vision and plan in the state made in partnership with people receiving services. And Melody is absolutely right. The state throughout all of this has completely shut out people um, receiving services and their families and has gone to court more than once to keep them from being able to say anything throughout the course of this lawsuit about what would help them. But there needs to be this overall plan, not just turning around to the mental health centers and saying, here's some money, and now you have to provide crisis services, because that's basically where we are now. But real expertise to bring in the technical assistance we need to see what that would look like. 
All that being said, there are individual mental health centers in the state, and Melody, if, I, if you've had different experience, please feel free to correct me, but who seem to, because of what they've been able to figure out, been able to come up with some models that are working. And there was actually an article in the paper, one of the papers about this yesterday, community counseling, which is seven counties in the area of Starkville, they have done, a, from what I can see, a very good job of um, creating in-person crisis response services that go out 24-7 and that actually respond to people in a very caring way and also get them the support they need that are good at de-escalation. And if they, they don't automatically um, involve law enforcement, and when that's absolutely necessary, I think they have been very good about doing that, um, the way they go about it, and they still take the lead. So I would say in this state, and there's probably other regions that are doing that kind of good work, but that one comes to mind. And I know we get about one or two calls a month at Families as Allies where we end up saying, call the crisis team, call the crisis team. And invariably, almost invariably, people will call back and say, they just told me to call the police or they told me to call the sheriff. That does not happen with that mental health center. So I would say that's a good model, but it would be so much better if we had a, the state infrastructure where individual mental health centers weren't scrambling to try and figure that out. And that one just happens to have the expertise that it was able to do that pretty much on its own with and state I, dollars. And, and I, I agree with Joy. There's a lot of them that are have made huge strides. My agency itself, half of our staff are peer support specialists because uh, our, our agency saw the value in listening to what is it that people are needing and, and hearing that personal voice. This is my experience. This is what happens to me. And uh, these are the things I need from you. And so we provide a lot of uh, support and services, but we're also offering continuing education. So for instance, we want to train the general public in mental health first aid, you know, just like regular medical first aid, this is mental health. So that if you're a church leader, a school teacher, uh, a grocery store clerk, um, you recognize that someone might have a mental health crisis and you know how to respond to that person and help them uh, to avoid having to take it to full-blown crisis. And uh, part of the gap of services that, um, uh, that we need to look at is that there needs to be something between I'm living my life and crisis, you know, because sometimes I just have a bad day or a bad couple of days and there's no, no place for me there. Either I'm full blown, getting my rights taken away from me, locked up behind a locked door, or I get nothing, you know, or waiting eight weeks, you know, for another appointment with my therapist. So there's no in between. And that is one of the things that uh, MHA certainly supports agencies that are doing that. And, uh, and then I'm working with a team of peer supporters in Mississippi called the Mississippi Recovery Advocacy Project. And that's what we're trying to do is set up those gaps of services, uh, like um, what they call respite, so that um, if I'm just having a bad day and I just need a safe place to go lay down and be in a, a judgment-free zone, a nurturing environment just for a little while, and maybe even have a group therapy session with somebody or you know, learn some new wellness tools, some coping skills, have somebody who can give me some encouragement. I can go home now and I can face the kids and I can you know, cook dinner and go to bed, go to work tomorrow and get back on with life, you know? And uh, so it's those little things, you know, so it's like, 
you know, we have that ongoing maintenance of therapy, which is really good. Pine Belt took over South Mississippi not long ago, and we have seen major improvements on helping uh, people on the Gulf Coast. Their services uh, serve uh, Hattiesburg area, just amazing. And uh, they also employ a lot of peer supporters. They respect that listening to people and um, and they really are making great strides in that. And they, they actually try to avoid, you know, making people go all the way to the crisis stage too. So they try to be responsive to a person's day-to-day needs because uh, just like with heart attacks, diabetes, epilepsy, we don't want to go to the hospital. You know, we want to be able to, I had a bad day, let's get over it so that I can be okay tomorrow. And, uh, and we with mental illness, that's what we want to. Both of you in some of your comments there kind of brought it back to the other question I had planned to ask before that, but it's more kind of a big picture question. I'm curious, you know, one of the things we see in Mississippi so often is that there isn't will on the, on the part, you know, from the top down or from across the state to do certain things. Right. You know, to to really kind of wrap their arms around some things that could actually make things cheaper and better and healthier going forward. So so I'm wondering within this one and maybe I'll kick this to you first, Joy. It's like, why do you think I know you can't speak for every single person, but why do you think it's so hard to get the state? I mean, the state is fighting a lot of these things, right? I mean, you're talking about that. So, I mean, it's not, it's not even just, you know, why is it so hard to get them to care? It's like, how, why is it so hard to stop them from fighting, you know, possible reforms? I mean, to you, is that, you know, is it ideological or something else? I mean, what is your, what is your take on that? That's the $64,000 question. Yeah. I know this is on Facebook Live. So if anybody out there knows the answer to that, <laughs> I really, I knew really you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is, this is what I think. I'm sure there's more than one thing. But part of it is the Department of Mental Health is the largest state employer. And that's unheard of. We are the only, as far as I know, we're the only state in the country where that's the largest employer. And I'm not saying it should be this way because this is, brings up a whole lot of other issues, but it's usually like the division of corrections. So largest state in, agency, largest state employer, they have a tremendous amount of influence in the legislature because they have built facilities and they built facilities after the Olmstead ruling. And they're for both people with developmental disabilities and people with mental illness, we have 12 facilities. Arkansas, which is a similar size state, has I think one for people with mental illness, plus a geriatric and then may facility, and then maybe like two for people with developmental disabilities. Georgia, you know, I mean, there's just no comparison. We have, they have 5,000 employees and they've downsized tremendously. Georgia has the same number of employees in their state mental health system. Those people are working in the central office of the Department of Mental Health and in those facilities. Now they're doing good work, I'm sure, and doing everything they can to help people. So I am not judging those individual people out there on the front line. And they should have been helped years ago to learn how to take those 
that caring and those good skills and do that in the community. But it's a political powerhouse. And to change it, you know, that's a lot of people's jobs. It's a lot of power all in one state agency. And then um, a lot of legislators who can be influenced because, and I don't know if this is still going on, but used to, if there was any threat to downsizing or their budget or anything, they, the Department of Mental Health was very good at quickly mobilizing all of those employees to call their legislators. You know, so you're up against a lot. And then, and I'm a little hesitant to say this, but I think it's something we just need to get out in the open and talk about honestly. I'm also not really clear who the Department of Mental Health is accountable to. Now, I will do this aside. Wendy Bailey has been the executive director since January of 2021. She has been very open to working together. We are working on, she and I are working on getting this interagency coordinating council for children and youth going together again together, and she is doing good things. So I'm not, she's in a difficult position and I, I hope she will help all this move in the right direction. But I think another thing we need to honestly look at is I am not sure who the Department of Mental Health is accountable to. In most states, there's not a separate Department of Mental Health. Um, it's within a larger agency, so it has to account to that agency. So it's like if it's in the depart state department, within the State Department of Health, it has to account for we have these 12 facilities. What are we doing? Are, do we really need all of them? Could any of it be consolidated, that type of thing? Or if it's a separate agency, it's typically part of a governor's cabinet. So in our state, it's overseen by a board. The board members serve for, are appointed by the governor. They serve for seven years. And on that board, most of those members have served at least one term, if not two or three. So I don't think it's necessarily something where the governor is going to stop in the midst of everything else and say, oh, you know, have they given me a report? What's going on? And there's not really mechanisms for them to report back to the public either. Like their minutes aren't on their website. Their meetings don't have public comments. So there's, it's a very insular system too. So it's hard to, so it's large. It has a lot of political influence and the accountability mechanisms aren't clear. So I think there's a lot to protect there that's what's being protected. That's the only thing I can figure out because nothing else makes sense. Kind of on that note, Joy, uh, you know, Donna and Kimberly, I don't, I'm not sure who the state's attorneys are representing. I honestly mm -hmm. can't figure mm -hmm. that out because when I talked to Wendy Bailey, our executive director of the Departmental Health, she wants Olmstead. She wants recovery services, recovery oriented system of care, all the things that I'm talking about, you know, including, uh, you know, the actual people receiving services and helping people to just live their lives. I'm hearing this all the time from the providers that I talk to. But then when I go into the courthouse, they're saying they don't want that and everything is fine like it is. So I'm not even sure you know, like Joy saying, I don't know who they're accountable to. I don't know who these attorneys are representing because nobody is supporting what they're saying. They're the only people saying those things. And um, because I'm hearing something completely different when I go talk to 
people in the mental health system. They want things to change. They want a recovery oriented system of care. So it's very confusing. I don't, I don't exactly know how they're making these connections and it's very confusing. So it's super confusing for a person like me with mental illness, trying to navigate a system like that and try to get my needs met. I don't know who to answer to if I have a complaint and I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. I've asked the attorney general's office and I will say the attorneys who are working on this case, there's ones who are from the attorney general's office and then they've contracted out with Phelps Dunbar and they have had two contracts where they could pay up to $8 million in each of those contracts. They didn't pay that much, but you know, that tells us something, but I have talked to the attorneys who are on this case in the attorney general's office. And if they're listening, they're probably thinking, Oh no, what's she going to say? But I asked them, you know, who's deciding in this case, who's the decider. And I said, because in my opinion, two things, they're not getting good information, A, and B, they don't know anything about Olmstead. And they told me that, you know, they can just listen and they can't tell me anything. They can't, they couldn't even tell me who's deciding things in this case. So that seems kind of weird. I mean, I pay taxes and our tax dollars are paying for this. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's them or if it's above them. I don't know if it's Attorney General Fitch. And if it is, I don't think she's getting good information. I don't know if it's the governor. You know, my conversations with him have not that I've had a lot have he has some understanding of mental health and things that need to happen. So it does. You know, I'm just I'm totally confused. So if anyone can figure out who's deciding things in this um, case, I think that would be really helpful. But I don't know. And I've asked. So I think I may have two questions, but I'll ask. So right now, feels like, and you guys tell me if that's, this is not what you're saying. It feels like the hole in the system is people with some moderate mental health illness that may have a crisis from time to time. They, they can function from day to day, but just may have a crisis. But that crisis can be, can escalate depending on the response. And that crisis is treated as if it is an extreme chronic situation in many cases. What's proposed in the lawsuit would help fill some of those gaps because what's on paper should work, should be okay for someone with moderate to mild mental illness that may have a crisis from time to time. Should be okay, but what's on paper in Mississippi isn't being implemented. Did I break that down in a layman's way? Does that make sense? Yeah, the only correction I would make, Kimberly, is that mm -hmm. those programs would work for people who are chronically disabled from their mental illness as well. Um, those okay. people are looked at as not being able to have a meaningful life. That's mm -hmm. part of the problem is that stigma that um, even people who every day, you know, struggle with reality or struggle with um, hallucinations or delusions, uh, those people can still have a much more meaningful, productive day if they are believed to by the people who are helping them. And that's the belief system that we need to change. That's part of that stigma is that if I have that chronic, if I, every time you talk to me, I'm going to say something that sounds strange to you. You know, they're going to look at that person as going, well, they can never do anything. You know, they're, they're, and that's not true. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, at MHA, we have a drop-in center for people who live with mental illness. And I've been there for 10 years and I have seen the strides that people have made. People who have been sent there by their guardianship caregivers 
and said, this is all, this is as good as they're going to be. And I'm all of a sudden seeing, uh, you know, one of them is now a homeowner. And, uh, you wow. know, so yeah, you know, some start pursuing education. Uh, we've got two people who have uh, decided that they're pursuing marriage, you know, so they can, once someone believes in them, that, that recovery is possible for everyone. We actually find out even those people in the most serious situations have potential to live the best that they can. It's just that someone needs to be able to work with them and believe that with them and not think, okay, let's just get you medicated so you can sit in your hole and watch TV and be a good girl. And, um, and that's all that's expected of you. And, uh, and that's what the system has done for so many years because that's what they believed is going to work. And so it's old school and that's hard to change is those attitudes. And we've got a lot of providers that come from that old school model and they're not quite grasping that. There was right. a leader leader at Department of Mental Health uh, years ago, and she gave the perfect description. She says, anyone can make a U-turn in the Titanic, but you got to do it one increment at a time, you know? And when you look right. at the DMH system as being a huge thing, it's going to take those little increments, but we have to continue mm -hmm. making those increments, not fighting against it, you know? And so, as far, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, the lawsuit itself focus on people with the most severe mental illness. So one thing they did during the course of that is the Department of Justice, and I don't even remember how they worked all this out, but they um, brought in experts to do a clinical review of some of the people who had been at the state hospital the longest, who had the most severe symptoms, to see if, in their expert opinion, if they had the right kinds of services and support, like what Melody's talking about, those people who she saw improve over years, you know, would they be able to live a meaningful life in the community if that's what they wanted? Because that's part of what Olmstead is, is if that person wants it. And those were the people who reviewed, were reviewed. And that's type of situation that people are in that this lawsuit was about. But if you get those services in place and they're operating well, then there should be a way to grow those things in, in a manner and add services that help people so that they're not getting to that point and um, who are dealing with more moderate issues. And this saves the state money. If people are getting well and living out in the community, they're saving the state money. Those people aren't living on the taxpayers as much. Um, they're not receiving as many services. They're you know, not billing Medicaid for so much. If people can, if we can get as many people as possible, you know, that uh, uh, minimizing how much they need. But right now we go to full-blown crisis, which is the most expensive thing that you can do to anybody, you know, or nothing. And, you know, so we cut to, we'll save ourselves money by implementing these programs. And that $8 million, that would go a long way. That, oh my goodness, I would, I would just, huh, we would have so many, so much progress with that $8 million right now. <laughs> So today, if kind of if we or anyone has someone in their family um, who is dealing with a mental health crisis and you don't it's one of those things where you don't know where to start because, you know, you know what to do when somebody has a heart attack, you know what to do, but you're not quite sure what to do, particularly if that mental health crisis is, is presenting itself when they're a little bit older, when they're a teenager or preteen or an adult, you're kind of like, what do I do? What's the first, first, second, third step? Kind of lay it out for us. 
every mental health center, the mental health centers, they're in regions and they're charged with covering the state. So the first thing, and it's unfortunate that everyone has a separate crisis number. And I think that's being worked on so that there's will eventually be just one crisis number. And there's actually eventually and soon there will be one crisis number nationally, which will be 988, 911 for mental health crises. But we're not there yet. But every mental health center and this we may be able to pull up on the Department of Mental Health website, there is one page that has a list of all the numbers for each mental health region. Now you have to know which mental health region you're in, but you call that number and they are charged with responding to that crisis, including in person, if necessary, 24 seven. And as we've alluded to, there's some inconsistency in that, but there's movement in that direction. So that would be step number one. And then step number two is they assign you a provider, kind of what happens typically after that appointments you know nine month waiting list um <laughs> some of the things that we do to fill in the gaps uh you know that at our own agency is that we stay on top of what we consider to be the top-notch recovery-oriented resources in the community because we know if a, a person seek, seeking services they might have to be on put on a waiting list if it's not full blown crisis, you know. Okay, and um, so what we do is we can provide them some wellness tools. We can actually, uh, most of us are certified to uh, actually teach those kinds of things to people. Management, let's help you to take care of yourself. Practice some self care. Let me show you some tools on how you can maintain and keep yourself as well as possible until we can get you connected to a therapist or whoever else, a counselor, case manager, or whoever it is that you might need to be seeing at that particular time. And so uh, part of our job is staying on top of what the community has to provide and also keeping good communication with the community mental health centers so that we know what the waiting list is, uh, we know who the therapists are, that we know how they work the system. Because one of the scariest things about asking for help is, now what do I do? Like you just asked Kimberly, what's my next step? And so we can actually help navigate those services with people. We can hold their hand. We can help them make some phone calls or fill out an application, you know, uh, call and do some follow-ups and things like that. So that's the stuff that we try to do to help fill in those gaps and make sure that that person doesn't fall through the gap while they're trying to get help before the crisis. You know, we're here to prevent that. You know, um, the crisis is the worst. I don't want you in a diabetic coma. I want you to maintain your diabetes. And so let's find you a nutritionist. Let's find you, you know, um, do you have enough insulin? Let's talk to your pharmacist. You know, so all of those kind of things, um, you know, to help a person out. And we do need more of that kind of navigation. And that's actually what peer support specialists are trained to do is help people navigate the system. And so we definitely need more peer support specialists in all the community mental health centers, the hospitals, uh, anything that has to do with mental health, there needs to be more peer support because that's what we're trained to do. As far as the immediate crisis, one, what one would hope is there would be that call that would be responded to either in person or on the phone and that they would help you stabilize. And then um, if someone does need to go somewhere, to get to the point where they're okay, that there are crisis residential units in communities so that someone doesn't necessarily have to go to a place far away from their home that should be able to provide stabilization if somebody needs that. 
Well, the first thing I need to, to mention here is our producer was trying to load the Department of Mental Health website and the department with the most employees in the, in the state government, that its website wouldn't load. So I just want you guys to know that. I don't know what that means at this moment. But um, <clears throat> anyway, um, so we only have a, a, a couple more minutes here, but I, I, I didn't want us to leave without asking you, Joy, for just kind of a quick bit on um <laughs> there's the <this> site <laughs> anyway i'm sorry i'm enjoying this too much i, I think the timing but just a, a a few words about children in mental health and what um uh, i'd love to do another whole show about that especially as our team kind of pulls together some some work and maybe have you back then but what what do you charge people with thinking about on that front as they leave this conversation today? A lot. I, I have so many things are going through my you mind. Do. One is, you know, there's so much going on with COVID and just all we can do with everyone, but especially with kids to just listen to them and find out where they are and support them and let them be where they are because there's no rule book for how to go through a pandemic. And they're, they're certainly bearing the brunt of a lot of things. So there's that. And then on that idea about putting services and support where children already are, the more we can put help where schools are, and I'm not talking about making teachers be therapists or anything like that, but supporting the children and then supporting the people in the schools, the teachers, they're so important to our kids' lives. Their teachers and their primary care providers, giving them tools that they need to be able to respond to kids and to set up classrooms so that all children can learn and their mental health can be supported and using some of the really good skills that therapists have to help do those kinds of things instead of necessarily always pulling children out. So I think just to be there where children really are, you know, both emotionally and physically and think about how can we set up things around them that help them deal with the things they're going through, especially now. So I don't know if that's profound, but that's what went through no, my head. No, but it, it's probably the reminder that people need as much as anything else, because, you know, the, these are these are difficult issues. But I guess what I would say on that is I'm 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 so happy you guys are doing this work and raising the awareness and nothing else to me that came out of this. And there was a lot. But this idea of how difficult like it's. It's, it's not like it's a tiny little mental health department. It's this large, I mean, that's sticking with me. It's, it's a big ship. It's the Titanic, you know, as you said, and that you still, you, you got to move it though. This is so important. And I mean, we all know that mental health issues has effects on everyone's lives, whether directly or indirectly. I mean, we all have stories, I know. So um, I, I, we appreciate you guys doing this, you know, having this conversation with us, we, we definitely need to pick it up again because there's a lot more to talk about. So we want to bring you guys into some of this, this reporting that we're doing and to help inform some of that reporting. So, uh, so we appreciate you doing this. Melody, thank you so much for talking about your own experiences. I mean, people need that so much more, I think you know, um, to, to hear people talk about it in a non-stigmatized kind of way. And so, so we really, we really appreciate you guys being here. Thank you for all of this. This went fast as always, <laughs> you know, just, just listen to you guys. I tell you, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm smarter about it, but thank you so much for your work. We appreciate you being here. 
Thank um, you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you're welcome. You're welcome. Keep doing the great work. MFP Live is a production of the Mississippi Free Press, reader-supported solutions journalism for the Magnolia State. You'll find it at mfp.ms. MFP Live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages, where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP Live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP Live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP Live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munkin and is available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms live.